Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Scott McCulloch's debut novel, Basin, explores the axis of landscape and consciousness, echoing the modernist tradition and written in an incendiary lit elliptical prose style, Basin maps the phenomenon of a civilization being reborn, a hallucinatory energy to the interzones of self and place. McCulloch was interviewed by Justin Clemens at Readings Carlton. Here's the recording of the event. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings Carlton. I'm so glad that you're all able to join us tonight to celebrate this fantastic book. Before we settle in and get on with tonight's event, I would like to take a minute just to point out and acknowledge that where we're meeting today is Indigenous land. This is the Kulin country, and the Wurundjeri people are the traditional custodians of this land. And I would like to make a point of paying my respect to the elders of the past, those here with us now in the present, and those that are yet to come, those who will lead to a process of reconciliation and a better future. I'd like to hand over to our interviewer tonight, Justin Clemens, widely published author, widely read, an expert on things far outside my pay grade and area of expertise. <laughs> but you're in very, very capable and confident hands to introduce the author of this fantastic book. Yes, thank you for joining us. Justin. Thank you, Nico. I'm sorry I'm going to begin by, by saying a bit about myself and, uh, and we, I hope it doesn't sound too much like a, a, a neg, but uh, I, teach, I teach English at, at the University of Melbourne. My interests are, are poetry and philosophy and I, I say this very specifically because one of the things about poetry is an absolute attention to the materiality of language and what is important about philosophy is an absolute attention to, the, to, to concepts. And this means that, like, I, I find contemporary fiction, for the most part, unbearable and unreadable. And I will pick up, like, any of the, uh, the, the books you find on the, on the recommended reading list. And after a, after a page or two, it, I have to put them down. I can't, I can't bear it. So I expected exactly the same thing to happen to me when uh, uh, last year Chris Fike, the publisher at Black Ink, sent me, sent me a manuscript... Uh, basically asking, I hope this isn't uh, falsifying what Chris, uh, Chris's very polite email said, is this, is this absolute shit or is this amazing? <laughs> and I, I have to tell you it was amazing and I, I believe that this book is amazing. While I was uh, uh, waiting to meet Scott at the pub before, because uh, we, we had, uh, since there's no drinks in this uh, COVID, COVID crazy town, I was sitting with... Uh, uh, a poet and a, and, a, and a philosopher and I was like come along this is an, a, an amazing book and the the poet picked it up and was like yes this is amazing and the philosopher picked it up and said this is precise and I would like to say this is something amazing about this book that you will get from the very first page that a poet reading contemporary fiction and a philosopher reading contemporary fiction from the very first moment, you know that there is something really going on with the materiality of language and there is something going on with the concept. And so it's on that note, in a, in a mode that normally refuses both of those, this incredible novel, Basin, by Scott McCulloch. Can you, can you please welcome, uh, welcome Scott? Thanks, Justin. 
as, as you know, this is going to be a kind of interview situation. I'm going to ask the most uh, 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 probing questions imaginable, which is, uh, Scott, great book. When did you start writing it? <laughs> uh, around 2016, I think. Uh, well, the actual writing period probably started more in 2017, but the gestation of ideas and the brewing of the content and so forth would have been, yeah, around that period. And then it took a couple of years to write and then a lot longer to edit. Yeah, so mo most of writing is rewriting if it's going to be anything anything real, it seems to me. Why did you want to write a novel? One of the things that uh, 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 you, you, you have done, and I, I only very belatedly and sadly realised this as a, a series of very interesting uh, articles, letters from Tehran, letters from Athens, uh, uh, that you, you published in the Australian Book Review. You've published a, a brilliant uh, a critical piece on Pierre Guillotard, who we may come back to because he seems to me a, a one of the, the, the kind of presiding geniuses that the, uh, of your book. But, uh, uh, but this is kind of what, what autofiction, Traveling fiction, what what documentary and, and and reportage? What made you want to write a novel in particular, and why 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 a novel? Well, essentially, I'd been wanting to write a novel for a long time, and I had you know I took a shot at it a couple of times, but they ended up being abandoned. But out of that process of abandonment, I ended up um, breaking down those abandoned novels into some series of different cut-ups and excerpts, which formed. Um, the basis of different prose pieces, these different short stories. And so I was experimenting with that while also getting across through journalism, basically. And that, that was more of, a, um, more of a day job scenario, but something that was very uh, interesting and compelling and walking into a different form and a different style of writing, which inevitably informed how to, you know, ideally train and become better as a writer as a whole and get more of a sense of panorama with... Uh, with the craft, with the art of it. So yeah, alongside writing those reportages, I was doing some essays and also writing these different short stories because I wanted to write a novel, but I wasn't prepared, I wasn't ready yet, after that experience of abandoning the last one. And the, these series of short stories kind of built the matrix for what was eventually based and then to move into a long form narrative. Yeah. Uh, why look? Uh, let's let's start with the title then. Why why basin basin? It's it's basic. It's it's clean. It's dirty. What what why why basin? Well, you know, of, of course, you know, through the process of trying to find a title, there was different, uh, you know, very verbose and angular and and long names that were uh, floating around, but nothing really quite got on target. So I can't really remember when I came up with the name itself. But it's a multi-pronged name. It means like basin is in, you know, a basin within a landscape or within a waterway, within a body of water. It also has a reference to, you know, free racing, like smoking crack. Also has a reference to the Donbass, the Donetsk Basin. And, and so could you, you also then say something, this title, this multifaceted title, which gives it a kind of psychogeography, a particular sort of place, and, and also sets of movements and, and, and possibilities in it. Can you say something more about the setting, the location for it, which is, is both real in some, some sense, but also psychogeographic, like also a hallucinatory landscape? I was really interested in this idea of, you know, as the blurb suggests, these questions of landscape and consciousness. 
and how they enact each other or how they don't and what interplay they have, what role do they play with each other and if they do have one whatsoever. I always knew from a pretty early stage on that it was going to be a road narrative. Yeah. And it was going to be a road narrative through and an odyssey through a particular terrain that I, uh, that I found interesting, which is the, the northeast horn of a, of a particular body of water, of a particular sea, which I'm not going to name to because uh, I think for a lot of people who have already read the work and who have uh, familiarity with these areas, it will come through quite obvious, but it was also through the process of abstraction and through the research phase of the histories of these areas that I felt it just needed to go deeper, deeper and deeper into this fictional realm for the sake of the narrative and for the sake of the place as well. I mean, one of the things that's, uh, that you are a kind of, I guess, inveterately peripatetic. You move around, it, it, you know, from, from speaking to you, you've been, and, and even from the, from the reportage that I, I invoked before, Athens, Georgia, Lebanon, like Ukraine and, and, and so on and so forth. Is, this, uh, is the movement itself part of the, part of the research, like in the, in the, in the sense of st as you move, starting to narrow down, starting to focus, starting to, to use your word, extract certain like regularities or exceptionalities from the, from the situations you visit? Absolutely, yeah. Like for, um, in the case of Basin, for example, it was... Um, the places that I'm writing about, which don't come through clearly in the novel, either I use the ancient names of the cities or I completely abstract them entirely. But in terms of the research you know, process, period, it, was all, it all happens in an embodied way. It all happened in situ. I did travel to these places where it is uh, loosely set. And in terms of um, a, a more general you know, itinerant way of being, then yeah, to try and replicate that sense of motion that I was looking for in the book, I felt like I have to have a sense of motion within myself. But this was happening already before I was writing the book, and it just seems to be my temperament, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so, so I, I guess this would be a, a good place for you to read, perhaps, the, the, the very beginning of the book, which I was, uh, I, I was both struck and excited, pleased to see uh, at once. It starts with zero. You start at nothing. Can you start us at nothing, please, Scott? Like. Sure. Shadow appears above, pushes on my stomach, sucks at my mouth, slaps my cheeks, drags me across pebble beach onto patch of black sand. Eyelids droop and close, black holes holding sight behind them as gravity slips, body shutting down. Shadow returns with a bicycle pump and two long plastic hoses attached to the valve. He forces one of the tubes down my throat and I feel my esophagus clench at the cool plastic as it pushes down to stomach. The man places the other tube over one of my shoulders and pumps the handle back and forth. Warm bile trickles out of the second tube between shoulder blades, trailing down with a faint sting through short white hairs on the back. He pushes the tube deeper into my abdomen and pumps, extracting the mix of poison and pills I gulped before running out to sea and stuffing head in plastic bag as I felt last rush of water, then dove into death. Dying and over and done, finished, I gave over to death, great morning of monstrous light, still searching with last droop of lid, now waking to ravaged throat and wide eyes on pebbled beach. He dumps me around the shore, slaps me again, pumps the handle, slaps, dung of stomach spat on bare thighs, ribcage filling with pressurized air, I vomit as the tide rolls in, diluting the sick across wet sands. He picks me up, 
sets me over his right shoulder, crosses the promenade. Through bile and chapped lips, I smell the pepper of eucalypts. Buildings with missing windows have large numbers painted on their sides. Back streets, puddles, pig carcasses hung up on hooks and covered in plastic. The siphon dangling from the man's denim pocket. Passers-by indifferent to him walking down the road, carrying my half-corpse. Mess of wires, sheathed in crusted skin. My synapses pollute each other back into motion. Water splashes in the open sewer. A large catfish whips his tail against the concrete side. Another street in number, Helena Blind Alley, 2A. Palm trees over 100 years old shade tall statues. The man pats me on the ass, lowers me to the curb, walks over to a small kiosk and scoops a plastic cup of shag tobacco into one of the many pockets of his fishing vest. He rolls me a cigarette, lights and passes it over. Coarse smoke curls in my throat. I cough it out. Men in the kiosk laugh, come out front, run their fingers through my hair, place a blue tarp over my bare shoulders, roll out a newspaper on the curb to my right, cut pieces of fruit with a butterfly knife and place them on the paper. Then pour shots of brandy into the cap of the open bottle and hand it to me. I swallow. My neck falls in on itself, veins pulsing through. Sharing the bottle cap, we drink in lots of three. One of the men points to a ransacked wooden house across the street with silver guttering and floral patterned iron fencing. To our brother who died in that house there, he died his dream. He filled a bath with a brandy like this and slid inside. He died drunk on life, drowning skin in sweet alcohol. We do the same. He downs his shot. The front page of the newspaper pictures a helmeted woman kissing a deceased child beside headline. Spike in inter-ethnic conflict. Lower on the page is a cartoon of worms crushed beneath hammers, white paste spilling out. The air swelters, my shoulders wet against the tarp, my mind mincing itself on skull bone. My throat rejects the next shot, spilling from corner of mouth onto newspaper and thigh. The men laugh and whistle as I sway sideways, my elbows squashing the cut fruit. Fat, salty fingers press on my tongue and onto tonsils. More vomit purges forth. I regurgitate back into life. The man from the beach jacks me up over his shoulder again. The others laugh and disperse into steaming streets. The humidity grimes my vision, blurring the men into shapeless forms. Then their laughter dies out too, soon traces into the open morning hours of day. I, I think that this is one of the things I was really taken by these two people who I mentioned before, the poet and the philosopher. No, the material of language and the concept, but also, as you will have heard, actually the pure physicality, absolute materiality in a, in a way that is both simultaneously abject but also somehow transcendent. You're coming back to life. This is a, not just a birth, but a rebirth. And this time you're being reborn by a guy, it turns out his name is Aslan, itself a very, very significant name. 
and there's an absolute attentiveness to both everything that's happening but also everything, as you say, going out in and out of focus uh, simultaneously. What does it mean to, 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 to come back to life? From there, and again, you've already also mentioned this, is the, the idea of fluids flowing in, flowing out, and that works at both a geographical, a, a giant geographical, but also down to the, 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 the fluids of the, the, the body as well. Could you speak a bit about that, that sort of, uh, I, I guess, uh, um, the correspondences between the body of the narrator and the, and the body of the landscape, the, the, the ins, the outs, the flows, the, the seas, the rivers? Sure. I remember early on when I was when I was studying writing back in university, and a really trusted confidant of of mine, of my friend Paul. Uh, one of the things that he, you know he had a lot of gripes with my writing, and uh, thought there were way too many experimental flights for fancy and so forth. But one of the things that I, I took away, he said, Scott, you get the fluids right. Mm. You know, it's <laughs> and so it's so, about flow, right? Yeah. yeah. You always get the fluids right. Well, you know, and interpret at will, whatever kind of fluid that might be. And so, well, innately, I was obviously always writing in this um, corporeal kind of manner, for want of a better word. Or So when I was, you know, composing this text, it, w it was interesting to, to me to see what the correlation was, was, you know, between the corporeal aspect of the human body and within the landscape itself. A lot of you haven't read, of, of course, but most of the text, apart from the second act, it takes place on... Uh, on, on some kind of body of water, whether it's on a coastline, whether it's down a river, whether it's on a waterway, or, or any kind of any kind of piece of water, or just um, or in the home when he's uh, hanging out with these uh, deranged madmen such as Aslan and the other kind of psychos and weirdos he comes in contact with as as he's trying to refract his psyche back together. One of the one of the things we, we we did speak about is the the role of water in these flows, but also a structure to the book. And one of one of the the books, strangely enough, uh, uh, that occurred to me while I was reading it, of uh, of all things, is an ancient Greek text by Xenophon called Anabasis, and which is a very famous uh, story. Uh, Xenophon was a student of Socrates. He was uh, a member of a sort of Greek mercenary uh, unit who who went off to fight for a Persian pretender. They they end up in the desert, and uh, immediately they're they're employed is killed and they're basically fucked. They're stuck in the desert. There's 10,000 Greeks. All they want is to get back to the water and uh, they have to basically fight their way back through an enormous number of hostile peoples until they break down, you know, Thalassa, Thalassa, when, when they finally finally see the sea again. I, I wanted to ask you, that was one of the, the, the texts that occurred to me, can you talk about your influences and the structuring of the, of the book because despite the, the objection, it, it also is precisely structured too. Could you say something about that? Yeah, well, actually, uh, well, Xenophon was was a particular influence, that's for sure. And um, yeah, that calling of the lights of the lights of the sea, the sea, when the, when these you know marauding uh, Greeks they reach, I think it's Trabzon, and they see the uh, they see the Black Sea for the first time, and it's this kind of overwhelming, uh, you know, the sea, my of, mother. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And alongside other ancient texts, I think um, a lot of the time people think this is, you know, it's, it's a kind of um, transgressive or contemporary experimentation, but actually most of the influences that come through are, yeah, within experimentation, within modernism, within the early 20th century, but then also quite some ancient texts too, such as you know, Xenophon, for example, the Greeks, Gilgamesh, I reread Gilgamesh through the research period of the text, alongside with, um, various other religious scriptures and 
and writing and historical documents and so forth. You know, when you're talking about the materiality of the text and the body of the text, Pierre Guillotard was a, uh, you know, an enormous influence and um, formidable figure within the realization of the book, who I was fortunate enough to meet while I was working on the book in the, in the early stages. Well you, well, you mentioned this to me the other day. I mean, Guillotin, who's not, who's not very well known, I think, in the English-speaking world, but is an absolutely magnificent and incredible writer. I mean, there is there is a, a very Guillotin sort of aspect, which is you just... And you used the word to me, and, uh, and perhaps you could uh, uh, speak a bit more about this, that, that, that a lot of what seems to be transgressive or excessive, like, you know, abject or, you know, is actually... It's 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 a feature of a leveling, leveling of experience. Yeah. Can you can you say more about the, the, the what you mean by this leveling of experiences in in in, in the writing? Well, the leveling of the experience is kind of based and it and it, it brews out of uh, the sensorial, I guess, and having these kind of pure blocks of of senses and emotions. That's another thing I think that. Um, perhaps doesn't come through in the book, but it's quite an emotional text to some degree. But not, not because it's written in first-person present tense, in a, in, a, in a different kind of, more perverse kind of way, so to speak. But in terms of the levelling, I think the levelling is um, it's talking more about the evacuation of, of kind of moral and ethical codes and the ways of representation, so to speak, of how the, of the figures, the landscapes, the actions move in and out of the text, as they're all kind of seen on the same plane, this kind of the same flatness of existence, or not even of, of non-existence even. Hopefully it puts you into this more suspended space and jumping into to categories of, of kind of what you think or, or preconceived ideas uh, of responding to perhaps an atrocity taking place or, or something that is um, regarded as deviant within particular societies or something that is taboo, that kind of gets, you know, flattened to what Soler's calls, at least in regard to Guillotard, as the golden space. I mean, when, when you say the golden space too, it makes me think of this, uh, uh, sorry, this is another ancient text, and I'm, uh, you know, uh, you can already see the horrible professorial, uh, like, drive to bore people to fucking death. And so I slightly apologise for that, but I did want to, to speak about when uh, uh, the political philosopher Leo Strauss speaks about Plato's laws. The first entire first book of that, uh, of, of Plato's text, other than The Republic, which is his political text, there's a, a dialogue between three, three old men. One of them's Athenian, so he can get pissed and drink. The others are from Crete and Sparta, and they can't drink. Why is the first book of this ancient political text all about drinking? And Leo Strauss says, because even if you can't drink physically, you've got to get out of your head mentally. And if you can't drink, then speaking about drinking also puts you into that other space. And so one of the, the, the paradoxes of it is the the political utopia that's about to be discussed can only be discussed when everyone's a little bit out of their head. And I think to come back to the levelling and, and, and perhaps you could say a little more about then the specificity of the characters that you meet in, this, in, this, uh, in the development of what is actually a, a, an emotional and positive book, if I can put it in those terms, actually a beautiful utopia but with the surface of horror. So we have Aslan but we also have Costa, we have uh, uh, the couple on the boat, we have uh, uh, Iris, we have... Can you say something about the characters that you meet, uh, uh, that the narrator, sorry to keep saying you, but the, but the narrator meets her along the way. 
Yeah, so first and foremost, the narrator is uh, nameless from, from the get-go of the story and remains so for the entirety of the text until the book is kind of done, yeah. <laughs> kind of just dissolved. Yeah, yeah, you're done, you're never done, yeah. The, the opening chapter, Zero, it opens um, coming to after some um, botched-up suicide attempt. Increasingly, uh, and the language follows suit with this, you start to put the pieces of the narrative together alongside the narrator as uh, he's coming back into being, into consciousness, into this deranged world that he's woken up into, which is obviously in some state of continuous or post-conflict or perhaps even geopolitical disaster. You know there's been this significant rupture that has taken place that has been um, you know, environmentally, geopolitically devastating but you're not entirely sure what has happened. It's not necessarily post-apocalyptic or, um, or sci-fi necessarily, even though, interestingly enough, a lot of science fiction influenced the book, at least uh, science fiction cinema from the 80s in the Soviet Union, Eastern Communist bloc. But anyway, that's a, that, that's a potential derailment. So yeah, as I said before, it's like the psyche of this already kind of deranged figure is, is, is not really put back together, but it's elucidated through very strange uh, people he meets along the way who are experiencing some kind of society in extreme flux. Absolutely, and so there's this kind of like, like contingents encounters with characters who nonetheless have a necessity that extract and form or help to reform this, this narrator who, as we, we heard. Yeah, and from very early on, I knew it wasn't going to be a, a plot-heavy text. Even though I think there is a um, you know an overarching narrative and a flow to the text, but it's very encounter-driven, and that's something you'll find with the book as well. There's a lot of dialogue throughout the book. There's this process of mirroring or mimesis that happens, wh whereby you, you learn the different shades of the personality of this person, which is intermixed with the personality of this world, mm. through the process of not situations, sequences, and scenes. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's right, and I think even though. Uh, even though it doesn't seem to be plot-driven, it definitely has a structure. Like, and that's uh, that 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 gap, which I guess is kind of almost a, a Russian formalism, really, between where where it seems to be just this contingent haphazard experience, but actually underneath it, something else is emerging, some 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 other space which is is there and not there. Could could you say more about that? And and despite the threat of derailment, uh, it does make me think of the, the Soviet science fiction that you, you mentioned. Could you say more about that and how that also uh, influences this aspect of the book? Another friend of mine in terms of uh, feedback and writing, he says like, you know, Scott, you're good at imagery. You don't have to overthink that too much. And I knew that it was always going to have this kind of, uh, for want of a much better word, because it's, it's so incredibly vague, but an experimental take, you know, have some kind of sense of experimentation within the language itself. Uh, both stylistically and within the narrative. And if I'm doing something plotless that's completely encounter-driven and hinging on these characters who are by and large psychotic, then it's going to get lost in the morass of esoteric hodgepodge or, or, or some kind of post-postmodern gameplay and trickery, which I didn't want to do from, from the start whatsoever. Not that I'm disparaging that kind of work, but it's not, it's not something that I want to write for or am capable of. So... I knew that it had to have some kind of tethering because it was going to have these tableaus and these flights and it was going to be dealing with these, um, I don't want to say complex because I want the book to be as simple as possible and I really wanted to distill it to the clearest elixir I could uh, come up with, so to speak. Through the structuring of the novel and also stepping from short form to long form after abandoning 
a long form text before. I just went for a uh, classical structure, you know, a three-act structure that would work and which also tied in with a lot of the reference materials, a lot of the research texts. And I always kind of perceived it, the composition of the text as a triptych, I guess, as three panels that have to kind of reach this certain colouring by the end of the journey. Or I also kind of thought about it sometimes as a, I work with sound and music often, so as kind of a print and text of an audio waveform, you know. Ideally, I hope that kind of tethered the narrative and, and it brought the narrative out rather than it getting, you know, lost in this complete dissonance of, of words and styles and derangements. And I also wrote it chronologically. I wrote it from start to finish all the way through. I didn't jump around. And this is something that is present in, in a lot of the work of, of, at least, that I really love of, yeah, Soviet science fiction, especially the late period. There's this amazing uh, filmmaker by the name of Konstantin Lepushonsky. He was a protege of Tarkovsky. So you can see the, uh, the lineage coming from Tarkovsky, but it's just way more insane and much more cerebral and psychedelic. And there's this one film called a visitor to a museum, yeah, it was a real cornerstone in terms of the formation of the book. Absolutely, and even the title of Visitor to a Museum, I mean, the museum has a structure, but as the visitor, you're not always aware of the, uh, the, the random, randomness of the higgledy-piggledy stuff you, you, you encounter. And so it has these tableau intensities, but there's also to, to, to have the, that, that kind of paradox of the, like, a, what a psychotic symphony, which is, is, is something that, that I think your book does too. When I was talking to Scott, I was like, hey, how about this bit? And it turns out that one of his friends has recorded this bit. And I'm going to ask, actually, if Scott is prepared to play uh, his friend's reading of this, uh, which I hope you understand why if you, if you get to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is something I wanted to read out myself as well. So it's nice we got on the level, coming back to the levelling. Yeah, simpatico. So this is at the end of the second act, towards the second act. So we're more than halfway through the book at this stage. It's chapter 25, if I remember correctly. Show, don't tell. Maybe I'll uh, let the scene speak for itself. I think it's kind of fairly self-explanatory, and if it's not, then um, can we can just play it again. No. Let's <laughs> play it again. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it's read by um, a friend of mine named Nancy, Nancy Lupo. She's a wonderful, wonderful artist from Arizona. Also in the process of reading one of my ambitions with the book was trying to make it as polyphonic as possible with all these different voices and with all these different characters and so forth. And also because, as I mentioned, it's written in the first person, present tense, so to kind of break down my own I, so to speak, I think it's interesting to have somebody else read and also just have some variation of voices in this room too. Make yourself comfortable. Yeah. Night falls and the building is engulfed in near-total darkness. A sliver of moon peers through clouds. I dump the timber in the room and sit in the corner for as long as I can bear the cold, for as long as I can stare into the blackness around me, chasing the streaks of gold my mind is printing before me, trying to follow the tales of each schism of light. The blackness continues to gleam and I stare and keep still until I can no longer tell if my eyes are opened or closed, if I am asleep or awake, regulating my breathing as an onslaught of visions race across my skull. Multiplication of power lines thick with soot feeding transformers, grids of entire cities, species and larvae moving, 
each room of the outstation enmeshed with bodies dead and alive, bleeding into each other via sweat, blood, gas, jism, piss, shit, the blinking eye of a crocodile. Shadow beating me with a pole on a concrete floor. My ambivalent response as I take the blows, feeling static electricity with each strike, the fruit vodka hugging Aslan's belly. Vultures sinking beaks into toads, rebel and separatist gangs taking turns with goats, discharging in the rear while holding onto the gonads, forcing captured boys to watch the sea spray on the lower deck of the ship, possessions of the insane being tortured through a concentration camp, forests filled with hundreds of lost dukes, chewing blackberries, a belly button pierced in the leathered coop of a train wagon, the mucus inside a donkey's nostril, animal cries sounding from a word turned inside out, further voyaging through the gaps, wetlands of high reeds with the checkpoint huts poking out of the scrub, a water hole in red sands, gunfire ricocheting between totems, staring into, staring into another with the eye, with anus, bursting point, buttocks splattered from a bloodied penis, Cretan ritual in a labyrinthine underground networks of monasteries, catacombs, necropolises, the molecules of gas and milk, the demented and wonderful colors born of industrial pollution, the soft mesh of evening for the street kids sniffing glue in the broken down car in the clearing, hanging gardens in full bloom, entwining, gnarling through air, through earth and air, entangling as devotional designs with no endpoint, trying to look God in the face, never arriving, cosmologically wrenched, wretched, uprooting my anchors in the sea and the sun, where these figures meet with the other remaining contents of my mind, where it crystallizes in the silent terror that dogs each footstep of life, all the while waiting to be shipped in a trunk to a home I don't have and nothing to do when I get there. And so I keep going, running on the grease, excreting from my pores, the dregs, the grist, the present. I make a fire in the corner where the melon was, lie back down on my jacket. The juice from the melon sizzles and evaporates the flames, letting out a faint odor of cheap perfume. I masturbate to shadows whipping across the walls, feel their burn inside of me, ejaculating onto the wall, onto silhouettes. Semen sizzles in fire, slides on linoleum. I rest my head on my arm. As sleep takes hold, my mind turns as, a, as in a carousel, passing from house to house, building to building, village to village, sea to sea, illness to illness, afterlife to afterlife. Uh, I think that that, that that Arizona drawled or something really, really hallucinatory to the the, the the kind of synesthetic intensity of the of the and just that uh, like uh, yeah bio biophysical horror I suppose that notwithstanding I guess look we've we've been talking uh, quite some time there was and, and there's there's much more we should 
and and could say about it. But I did want to 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 come back to the question of the dystopia and the utopia. Like you can hear. As we've been saying, the dystopic, horrific aspect of this uh, flesh, body melt, flesh horror. But at the same time, as, as, as Scott has also said, actually it's in a golden space. Something needs to emerge from it that's absolutely other from the presentations that have been levelled in the, in, the, in the way that you have. Uh, I, uh, you started uh, uh, in, in one of your articles, for instance, uh, uh, a quote from Marx, which is oh, okay, about, yeah. you know, history and nature and its decay is the laboratory of the future. And we were, we were speaking about it. I then thought about, well, there's still a future there, right? I thought about this Gramsci quote, the, you know, the past is dead, the future is struggling to be born, in the interim there's, there's monstrosities essentially. But even there, there's still a future. When I read this, I think, look around us, the, wor the world is burning, we're in, already in a kind of utter dystopia, is there a future? This is part of the question I would like to ask about the kind of conceptual utopia that's, that's in your book. Is there a future? Is this book about the future? And if so, how? Yeah, I think, you know, from the outset and from the, you know, the surface value of the text, it does look pretty uh, unbelievably bleak and hopeless and uh, cynical and pessimistic and, you know, doomsday. What else to say? That, no, that's not my sentiment. Blues is happy music. Yeah. It's happy music, right? Perhaps this is a good, I know it's, it's late, Perhaps there's a good way to end. This is happy music. Can you buy this book, Basin? Can you congratulate Scott on this amazing first novel? Bye, bye, bye. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Scott. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.